Heavenly Father, you are the God who speaks and you have spoken to us through your servants, the prophets and the apostles. We pray that this morning as we attend to their word, we might hear you, that you might shape the way we live as disciples of the Lord Jesus and that you might cause us with every breath to honour him who saved us, for we pray in his name. Amen. Well, one of the most exciting things about studying the Bible, it seems to me, is that sometimes what at first glance seems to be so strange and distant from us and our everyday experiences, followers of Jesus in the 21st century, proves to be, when you take a closer look, something of intense relevance and monumental importance. When 1 Corinthians 8 was read for us a few moments ago, The differences between our situation and that of the Corinthians in the first century might have stood out to you. We don't have pagan temples on every corner. There are no ritual sacrifices where meat is offered to idols and then made available for consumption and sale. That's not our issue. Sure, there are restaurants where you can see a small plate of fruit in front of a statue of Buddha or some Hindu god, even here in Newtown. And sure, more and more places are selling halal meat, which involves slaughtering the animal in a certain way, but also pronouncing the Arabic name for God before each slaughter and after an initial blessing. But by and large, these things are remote from us and not a part of our daily lives. In Corinth, in the first century, though, religious faith and food were much more intertwined. The local temple was a site of religious observance Yes, but it was also a place where you would gather with friends. You could sit down and eat together. You could buy the meat that was left over after the sacrifices, take it home and feed the family. The temple was, as some have put it, a cross between a restaurant, a nightclub, a meat market, and, of course, a temple. (laughs) So it was very hard to avoid some connection to pagan religion and idols if you lived in Corinth. Now, that difference between us and Corinth might lead you to think that this chapter has less relevance to us than those on sexual immorality that come before it in this letter. But that would be a mistake. What God has to say to us in this chapter is intensely relevant, especially for us here in this college... And it is of monumental importance. For Paul is not just talking about where you get your food from. He is talking about how we treat each other. Providing principles that extend way beyond this particular example. So we need to come to grips with what Paul is saying here because what he says makes a difference to how we live among God's people in this place. In our homes and in the churches we serve. Take hold of the two principles that Paul outlines for us here and they will revolutionise your ministry and they will revolutionise your discipleship as they redefine for you what it means to be mature in the faith and what it means to be free. Well, the first principle comes right at the start of this chapter. It's not what you know but how you love that counts. Not what you know, but how you love that counts. Take a look again at verse 1. 
Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. It seems Paul was quoting what the Corinthians themselves had said on the matter. We know all about idols. We know they don't mean anything. It's all a facade. And because we know that, we don't have to be concerned about eating meat that was previously offered to idols. Now, Paul doesn't attack what they know. In fact, in verses 4 to 6, he goes on to affirm what they know. They were right. Their knowledge is true knowledge. He spells it out in verses 4 to 6. We know that an earthly idol has no real existence and there is only one God. And although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, there are indeed many gods and lords, but for us there's one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's what we know. And yes, that's entirely right. Again and again in the Old Testament, God made clear that the, the making and worship of idols is utter foolishness. Paul has no dispute at all with what they know. In our ordered universe, created and purposeful, there is and can only be one God. And so idols, all idols, are empty nothings. They can't bless anything. They can't curse anything. They can't do anything. They make no difference to anything around them, not even to what's put in front of them. No matter how beautifully decorated or crafted they are, no matter who they are meant to represent. Yes, we know that, Paul concedes. Never despises that knowledge. But right here at the beginning, he challenges how they use it. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In a place like this, which aims to grow your knowledge of God and his purposes, a place like Moore College, that's something we need to have deeply impressed upon us, isn't it? Knowledge, if it is to be true knowledge, is a good thing. Paul would pray for the Colossians that they might be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge is a good thing. The knowledge of God is a very good thing. Growing in knowledge is an excellent thing. But the danger with knowledge is that it can inflate your ego and separate you from those who don't have it. It can feed a sense of superiority. It can lead you to look down on those who are yet to learn the things that you've learned, to sit in judgment on those whose theology is not quite as biblical, not quite as consistent or not quite as comprehensive as yours. And so Paul counters the suggestion, yes, we all know that, with knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The principle he wants them to grasp is it's not what you know, but how you love that counts. After all, none of us has an exhaustive knowledge of anything, especially not of God. Paul's going to make the point emphatically in a few chapters' time. For now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. 
Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. There's a world of difference, isn't there, between filling a balloon with air and building the kind of solid foundations on which a building can withstand a hurricane. And it is a difference of, on that kind of scale that Paul sees between knowledge and love. As one godly saint put it, the mark of mature Christian discipleship is a full heart, not a full head. It's not what you know, but how you love that counts. It is too easy to turn knowledge into a weapon, to look down on those who do not know what you know, to judge them harshly. If their theology was better, then they'd whatever. Some of the Corinthians, it seems, believed that they had true knowledge on their side. And they were somewhat impatient to act on that knowledge, regardless of the consequences. But even when knowledge is true and right, it's not enough. That's Paul's point. How you use that knowledge in the service of those God has given you to love is the more important thing. It's not what you know, but how you love that counts. As uh, Paul teases out how that principle makes a difference in the situation here in Corinth, he gives us another principle, which is really just the same one in different words. It's not my freedom, but your salvation that counts. It's not my freedom, but your salvation that counts. You might know that liberating truth that idols are nothing and can do nothing, Paul writes, but not everybody knows that. Not everyone has been able to easily detach themselves from their former lives. Eating food previously offered to idols meant something back then, so to keep eating like that now would wound their conscience. What you eat might well be a trivial matter, but the state of a Christian's conscience is not. Paul's point is that it is a very serious matter if you insist on exercising the freedom your knowledge convinces you that you have and cause another brother or sister to stumble. If they are drawn back into idolatry because their conscience was wounded after they followed your example, Paul doesn't mince words in verse 12, does he? Then you are sinning against the brothers. And since the one who has stumbled because of you is a brother for whom Christ died, you have sinned against Christ. It's that serious. Remember, what they knew was right. Idols are nothing. And so they do nothing to the food. And the Corinthians were perfectly free to eat the meat they had pre that had been previously offered to idols. The theology was sound. The argument was faultless. But because their exercise of this freedom harmed their brother or sister, by encouraging others by their example to do something their own consciences told them they should not do, they had sinned against the brothers and sinned against Christ. That's pretty sharp, isn't it? It wasn't just that the other brother or sister didn't like what they were doing. It wasn't just a matter of hurt feelings or offended sensibilities. It was rather that their conscience was wounded. They were led to act against their conscience in a way which drew them back into idolatry 
and they stumbled. Did you notice the language Paul uses when he describes the impact of this high-handed use of knowledge? Verse 9, be careful then that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Verse 11, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Verse 13, causing my brother to fall into sin. Open your eyes and see that consequences as serious as that can't be justified by, well, we all know that idols are nothing. Or, well, anyone with an ounce of theology should know this is a matter of freedom. The point is that the loving care of your brothers and sisters matters that much. It matters immeasurably more than the freedom that you might rightly know you have. We live in a world that's dominated by the concept and language of rights. Our collective rights as citizens, my personal rights as a human being. We define freedom as the unrestrained exercise of those rights. And because that's the air we breathe, we bring it into the church. We Christians can talk about my right to make this choice or that choice. We simply call it Christian freedom. No other Christian has the right, see that's that language again, to constrain my freedom. The gospel frees me to make my own choices before God. Now, where do you see that being played out, even here at Moore College? An insistence on my freedom that pays no attention to the conscience of those around me for whom Christ died. You might be able to think of a number of things. The most obvious example is our use of alcohol. We know that the Bible nowhere places a total ban on alcohol. The psalmist sung of how God gave wine to gladden the hearts of man. And Paul told Timothy to use a little wine for the sake of his stomach. Yes, there are warnings about drunkenness, but alcohol itself is a good gift of God to be received with thanksgiving. We all know that. And I know people who have insisted upon their right to drink, their Christian freedom, but seem blind to the impact the exercise of their freedom has on the person sitting beside them who left behind a life addicted to alcohol when they came to Christ. But as I say, that's the obvious example. Are there other ways in which our knowledge, true though it may be, and acting on it, free though we might be to do so, could wound the conscience of our brother or sister lead them away from faithful discipleship rather than encourage them in it and ultimately cause them to stumble. Paul's stark point is that to use your knowledge in this way, to exercise your freedom in this way, is to destroy your brother and to sin against Christ. To be so focused on what you know, puffed up with pride because you know it, and insisting on your right to act according to your conscience is very dangerous. Be careful, Paul writes, that the exercise of your freedom, the word he uses is the normal word for authority. Be careful then that this authority of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. 
Because it's not what you know, but how you love that counts. And it's not my freedom, but your salvation that counts. Brothers and sisters, how far would you be prepared to go to protect, not your own conscience, but the conscience of another brother or sister? What would you be prepared to forego so that they do not stumble? In the very last verse of this chapter, we see how far Paul was prepared to go. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Paul knew that it would he would lose nothing if he did not exercise this freedom he knew he had. And he wouldn't gain nothing, he would gain nothing by exercising it. It would not harm him either way, restraining from it or exercising it. But it might harm another. And he was not prepared to do that. Understand these two principles. It's not what you know, but how you love that counts. It's not my freedom, but your salvation that counts. And it will revolutionise your personal discipleship and your ministry. As you grow in the knowledge of God in this place, you will see that that knowledge leads you not to a sense of superiority, but to a determination to serve. The concern of the mature Christian is not to parade their own freedom but to protect the most fragile brother or sister who, just like me, is one for whom Christ died. Take these principles seriously and you'll be willing to suffer loss, to miss out, to restrain your own freedom so that you do not become a stumbling block to another. See, this part of Paul's letter is intensely relevant especially to us here, growing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Be careful then that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that you might address us through your word and you have done that. We pray that by the power of your spirit you might enable us to heed your word and we ask this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.